Chapter One, Part One of the Stones of Venice, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephanie Lee. The Stones of Venice, Volume One by John Ruskin. The Quarry, Part One. Since the first dominion of men was asserted over the ocean, three thrones, of mark beyond all others, have been set upon its sands, the thrones of Tyre, Venice, and England. Of the first of these great powers only the memory remains, of the second the ruin, the third, which inherits their greatness, if it forget their example, may be led through prouder eminence to less pity destruction. The exaltation, the sin, and the punishment of Tyre have been recorded for us, in perhaps the most touching words ever uttered by the prophets of Israel against the cities of the stranger. But we read them as the lovely song, and close our ears to the sternness of their warning, for the very depth of the fall of Tyre has blinded us to its reality, and we forget, as we watch the bleaching of the rocks between the sunshine and the sea, that they were once, as in Eden, the garden of God. Her successor, like her imperfection of beauty, though less in endurance of dominion, is still left for our beholding in the final period of her decline, a ghost upon the sands of the sea, so weak, so quiet, so bereft of all but her loveliness, that we might well doubt as we watched her faint reflection in the mirage of the lagoon, which was the city and which the shadow. I would endeavour to trace the lines of this image before it be for ever lost, and to record, as far as I may, the warning which seems to me to be uttered by every one of the fast-gaining waves that beat like passing bells against the stones of Venice. It would be difficult to overrate the value of the lessons which might be derived from a faithful study of the history of this strange and mighty city, a history which, in spite of the labor of countless chroniclers, remains in vague and disputable outline, barred with brightness and shade, like the far-away edge of her own ocean, where the surf and the sandbank are mingled with the sky. The inquiries in which we have to engage will hardly render this outline clearer, but their results will, in some degree, alter its aspect, and, so far as they bear upon it at all, they possess an interest of a far higher kind than that usually belonging to architectural investigations. I may, perhaps, in the outset, and in few words enable the general reader to form a clearer idea of the importance of every existing expression of Venetian character through Venetian art, and of the breadth of interest which the true history of Venice embraces, than he is likely to have gleaned from the current fables of her mystery or magnificence. Venice is usually conceived as an oligarchy. She was so during a period less than the half of her existence, and that including the days of her decline and it is one of the first questions needing severe examination, whether that decline was owing in any wise to the change in the form of her government, or altogether, as assuredly in great part, to changes in the character of the persons of whom it was composed. The state of Venice existed thirteen hundred and seventy-six years, from the first establishment of a consular government on the island of Rialto, to the moment when the general-in-chief of the French army of Italy pronounced the Venetian Republic a thing of the past. Of this period, two hundred and seventy-six years were passed in a nominal subjection to the cities of old Venetia, especially to Padua, and in an agitated form of democracy, of which the executive appears to have been entrusted to tribunes, chosen one by the inhabitants of each of the principal islands. 
For six hundred years, during which the power of Venice was continually on the increase, her government was an elective monarchy, her king or doge possessing, in early times at least, as much independent authority as any other European sovereign, but an authority gradually subjected to limitation, and shortened almost daily of its prerogatives, while it increased in a spectral and incapable magnificence. The final government of the nobles, under the image of a king, lasted for five hundred years, during which Venice reaped the fruits of her former energies, consumed them, and expired. Let the reader therefore conceive the existence of the Venetian state as broadly divided into two periods, the first of nine hundred, the second of five hundred years, the separation being marked by what was called the Serrar del Consiglio, that is to say, the final and absolute distinction of the nobles from the commonalty, and the establishment of the government in their hands to the exclusion alike of the influence of the people on the one side and the authority of the doge on the other. Then the first period of nine hundred years presents us with the most interesting spectacle of a people struggling out of anarchy into order and power, and then governed, for the most part, by the worthiest and noblest man whom they could find among them, called their doge or leader with an aristocracy gradually and resolutely forming itself around him, out of which, and at last by which, he was chosen. An aristocracy owing its origin to the accidental numbers, influence, and wealth of some among the families of the fugitives from the older Venetia, and gradually organizing itself, by its unity and heroism, into a separate body. This first period includes the rise of Venice, her noblest achievements and the circumstances which determined her character and position among European powers, and within its range, as might have been anticipated, we find the names of all her hero princes, of Pietro Orsiolo, Ordolafo Fallier, Domenico Michieli, Sebastiano Ziani, and Enrico Dandolo. The second period opens with a hundred and twenty years, the most eventful in the career of Venice, the central struggle of her life stained with her darkest crime, the murder of Carrara. Disturbed by her most dangerous internal sedition, the conspiracy of Fallier, oppressed by her most fatal war, the war of Chiosa, and distinguished by the glory of her two noblest citizens, for in this period the heroism of her citizens replaces that of her monarchs, Vitor Pisani and Carlo Zeno. I date the commencement of the fall of Venice from the death of Carlo Zeno, 8th May, 1418, the visible commencement from that of another of her noblest and wisest children, the doge Tommaso Mosanigo, who expired five years later. The reign of Foscari followed, gloomy with pestilence and war, a war in which large acquisitions of territory were made by subtle or fortunate policy in Lombardy, and disgrace, significant as irreparable, sustained in the battles on the Po at Cremona and in the marshes of Caravaggio. In 1454, Venice, the first of the states of Christendom, humiliated herself to the Turk. In the same year was established the Inquisition of State, and from this period her government takes the perfidious and mysterious form under which it is usually conceived. In 1477, the great Turkish invasion spread terror to the shores of the lagoons, and in 1508, the League of Cambrai marks the period usually assigned as the commencement of the decline of the Venetian power. The commercial prosperity of Venice in the close of the fifteenth century blinding her historians to the previous evidence of the diminution of her internal strength. 
now there is apparently a significative coincidence between the establishment of the aristocratic and oligarchical powers and the diminution of the prosperity of the state but this is the very question at issue and it appears to me quite undetermined by any historian or determined by each in accordance with his own prejudices it is a triple question first whether the oligarchy established by the efforts of individual ambition was a cause in its subsequent operation of the fall of venice or secondly whether the establishment of the oligarchy itself be not the sign and evidence rather than the cause of national enervation or lastly whether as i rather think the history of venice might not be written almost without reference to the construction of her senate or the prerogatives of her doge it is a history of a people eminently at unity in itself descendants of roman race long disciplined by adversity and compelled by its position either to live nobly or to perish for a thousand years they fought for life for three hundred they invited death their battle was rewarded and their call was heard throughout her career the victories of venice and at many periods of it her safety were purchased by individual heroism and the man who exalted or saved her was sometimes oftenest her king sometimes a noble sometimes a citizen to him no matter nor to her the real question is not so much what names they bore or with what powers they were entrusted as how they were trained how they were made masters of themselves servants of their country patient of distress impatient of dishonour and what was the true reason of the change from the time when she could find saviours among those whom she had cast into prison to that when the voices of her own children commanded her to sign covenant with death on this collateral question i wish the reader's mind to be fixated throughout all our subsequent inquiries it will give double interest to every detail nor will the interest be profitless for the evidence which i shall be able to deduce from the arts of venice will be both frequent and irrefragable that the decline of her political prosperity was exactly coincident with that of domestic and individual religion i say domestic and individual for and this is the second point which i wish the reader to keep in mind the most curious phenomenon in all venetian history is the vitality of religion in private life and its deadness in public policy amidst the enthusiasm chivalry or fanaticism of the other states of europe venice stands from first to last like a masked statue her coldness impenetrable her exertion only aroused by the touch of a secret spring that spring was her commercial interest this the one motive of all her important political acts or enduring national animosities she could forgive insults to her honour but never rivalship in her commerce she calculated the glory of her conquest by their value and estimated their justice by their facility the fame of success remains when the motives of attempt are forgotten and the casual reader of her history may perhaps be surprised to be reminded that the expedition which was commanded by the noblest of her princes and whose results added most to her military glory was one in which while all europe around her was wasted by the fire of its devotion she first calculated the highest price she could exact from its piety for the armament she furnished and then for the advancement of her own private interests at once broke her faith and betrayed her religion and yet in the midst of this national criminality we shall be struck again and again by the evidences of the most noble individual feeling the tears of dandolo were not shed in hypocrisy though they could not blind him to the importance of the conquest of zara 
the habit of assigning the religion a direct influence over all his own actions and all the affairs of his own daily life is remarkable in every great venetian during the times of the prosperity of the state nor are instances wanting in which the private feeling of the citizens reaches the sphere of their policy and even becomes the guide of its course where the scales of expediency are doubtfully balanced i sincerely trust that the inquirer would be disappointed who should endeavour to trace any more immediate reasons for their adoption of the cause of alexander the third against barbarossa than the piety which was excited by the character of their suppliant and the noble pride which was provoked by the insolence of the emperor but the heart of venice is shown only in her hastiest counsels her worldly spirit recovers the ascendancy whenever she has time to calculate the probabilities of advantage or when they are sufficiently distinct to need no calculation and the entire subjection of private piety to national policy is not only remarkable throughout the almost endless series of treacheries and tyrannies by which her empire was enlarged and maintained but symbolized by a very singular circumstance in the building of the city itself i am aware of no other city of europe in which its cathedral was not the principal feature but the principal church in venice was a chapel attached to the palace of a prince and called the chiesa ducale the patriarchal church inconsiderable in size and mean in decoration stands on the outermost islet of the venetian group and its name as well as its site is probably unknown to the greater number of travellers passing hastily through the city nor is it less worthy of remark that the two most important temples of venice next to the ducal chapel owe their size and magnificence not to national effort but to the energy of the franciscan and dominican monks supported by the vast organization of those great societies on the mainland of italy and countenanced by the most pious and perhaps also in his generation the most wise of all the princes of venice who now rests beneath the roof of one of those very temples and whose life is not satirized by the images of the virtues which a tuscan sculptor has placed around his tomb there are therefore two strange and solemn lights in which we have to regard almost every scene in the fitful history of the rivo alto we find on the one hand a deep and constant tone of individual religion characterizing the lives of the citizens of venice in her greatness we find this spirit influencing them in all the familiar and immediate concerns of life giving a peculiar dignity to the conduct even of their commercial transactions and confessed by them with the simplicity of faith that may well put to shame the hesitation with which a man of the world at present admits even if it be so in reality that religious feeling has any influence over the minor branches of his conduct and we find as a natural consequence of all this a healthy serenity of mind and energy of will expressed in all their actions and a habit of heroism which never fails them even when the immediate motive of action ceases to be praiseworthy with the fullness of the spirit the prosperity of the state is exactly correspondent and with its failure her decline and that with a closeness and precision which it will be one of the collateral objects of the following essay to demonstrate from such accidental evidence as the field of its inquiry presents and thus far all is natural and simple but the stopping short of this religious faith when it appears likely to influence national action correspondent as it is and that most strikingly with several characteristics of the temper of our present english legislature is a subject morally and politically of the most curious interest and complicated difficulty one however which the range of my present inquiry will not permit me to approach 
and for the treatment of which I must be content to furnish materials in the light I may be able to throw upon the private tendencies of the Venetian character. There is, however, another most interesting feature in the policy of Venice, which will be often brought before us, and which a Romanist would gladly assign as a reason of its irreligion, namely the magnificent and successful struggle which he maintained against the temporal authority of the Church of Rome. It is true that, in a rapid survey of her career, the eye is at first arrested by the strange drama to which I have already alluded, closed by that ever-memorable scene in the portico of St. Mark's. The central expression in most men's thoughts of the unendurable elevation of the pontifical power. It is true that the proudest thoughts of Venice, as well as the insignia of her prince, and the form of her chief festival, recorded the service thus rendered to the Roman Church. But the enduring sentiment of years more than balanced the enthusiasm of a moment, and the bull of Clement V, which excommunicated the Venetians and their doge, likening them to Dathan, Abram, Absalom, and Lucifer, is a stronger evidence of the great tendencies of the Venetian government than the umbrella of the doge or the ring of the Adriatic. The humiliation of Francesco Dandolo blotted out the shame of Barbarossa, and the total exclusion of ecclesiastics from all share in the councils of Venice became an enduring mark of her knowledge of the spirit of the Church of Rome, and of her defiance of it. To this exclusion of papal influence from her councils, the Romanists will attribute their irreligion, and the Protestant their success. The first may be silenced by reference to the character of the policy of the Vatican itself, and the second by his own shame when he reflects that the English legislature sacrificed their principles to expose themselves to the very danger which the Venetian Senate sacrificed theirs to avoid. One more circumstance remains to be noted respecting the Venetian government, the singular unity of the families composing it, unity far from sincere or perfect, but still admirable when contrasted with the fiery feuds, the almost daily revolutions, the restless successions of families and parties in power, which filled the annals of the other states of Italy. That rivalship should sometimes be ended by the dagger, or enmity conducted to its ends under the mask of law, could not but be anticipated where the fierce Italian spirit was subjected to so severe a restraint. It is much that jealousy appears usually unmingled with illegitimate ambition, and that, for every instance in which private passion sought its gratification through public danger, there are a thousand in which it was sacrificed to the public advantage. Venice may well call upon us to note with reverence that of all the towers which are still seen rising like a branchless forest from her islands, there is but one whose office was other than that of summoning to prayer, and that one was a watch-tower only. From first to last, while the palaces of the other cities of Italy were lifted into sullen fortitudes of rampart, and fringed with fort battlements for the javelin and the bow, the sands of Venice never sank under the weight of a war-tower and her roof terraces were wreathed with Arabian imagery, of golden globes suspended on the leaves of lilies. These, then, appear to me to be the points of chief general interest in the character and fate of the Venetian people. I would next endeavor to give the reader some idea of the manner in which the testimony of art bears upon these questions, and of the aspect which the arts themselves assume when they are regarded in their true connection with the history of the state. First, receive the witness of painting. It will be remembered that I put the commencement of the fall of Venice as far back as 1418. Now, John Bellini was born in 1423, and Titian in 1480. John Bellini and his brother Gentile, two years older than he, 
close the line of the sacred painters of Venice, but the most solemn spirit of religious faith animates their works to the last. There is no religion in any work of Titian's. There is not even the smallest evidence of religious temper or sympathies either in himself or in those for whom he painted. His larger sacred subjects are merely themes for the exhibition of pictorial rhetoric, composition, and color. His minor works are generally made subordinate to purposes of portraiture. The Madonna in the Church of the Frari is a mere lay figure, introduced to form a link of connection between the portraits of various members of the Pissarro family who surround her. Now this is not merely because John Bellini was a religious man, and Titian was not. Titian and Bellini are each true representatives of the school of painters contemporary with them, and the difference in their artistic feeling is a consequence not so much of difference in their own natural characters as in their early education. Bellini was brought up in faith, Titian in formalism. Between the years of their births the vital religion of Venice had expired. The vital religion observed, not the formal. Outward observation was as strict as ever, and Doge and Senator still were painted, in almost every important instance, kneeling before the Madonna or St. Mark. A confession of faith made universal by the pure gold of the Venetian sequin. But observe the great picture of Titian's in the Ducal Palace, of the Doge Antonio Grimani kneeling before faith. There is a curious lesson in it. The figure of faith is a coarse portrait of one of Titian's least graceful female models. Faith had become carnal. The eye is first caught by the flash of the doge's armor. The heart of Venice was in her wars, not in her worship. The mind of Tintoret, incomparably more deep and serious than that of Titian, casts the solemnity of its own tone over the sacred subjects which it approaches, and sometimes forgets itself into devotion. But the principle of treatment is altogether the same as Titian's, absolute subordination of the religious subject to purposes of decoration or portraiture. The evidence might be accumulated a thousandfold from the works of Veronese, and of every succeeding painter, that the fifteenth century had taken away the religious heart of Venice. End of chapter 1, part 1